This is Henry from Techler on Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. And today we have episode 265 for March 28th, 2022. And today we've got a really fun interview. I'm going to be talking with Henry from TechLore. Now, I've mentioned TechLore a couple times before, so you should have heard of them at least. But hopefully you've checked them out. But if not, I'm sure you will after this interview. So real quick before we get into it, first of all, i got to say, you only have five more days to enter the big podcast fifth anniversary giveaway. Over $2,600 in prizes will be divided among 10 lucky winners. Uh, I will recap the prize list a little bit uh, after the interview. And uh, the key thing, though, is to remember, you've got to do this before midnight Eastern time this Friday, uh, April 1st. So if you're going to do it, get on it. All right. So let me set up this interview a little bit and then we'll get into it. First of all, you know, I go to admit, so <laughs> this is a bit a little bit of a meta interview. Uh, he and I are both kind of doing the same thing in our own respective ways. We are trying to educate people on privacy, you know, why it's important and how to achieve privacy and what tools to use, what services to use, what things not to do. And so, you know, a little bit of a mutual admiration society thing going on, going on here. I will, I will admit that. And you'll pick up on that. And, you know, so we're, we're talking about privacy with each other. And sometimes we kind of forget the mics on kind of thing. And we're just kind of talking to each other. But along the way, you know, we're going to cover some great products and tips on how, on how to improve your privacy and why it's hard to, be private today and why it's hard to make recommendations and how you figure out who you can trust when you're trying to determine which products and services are better for your privacy. So along the way, you'll get a little bit of a, you know, maybe a peek behind the curtain of what it's like to be in our shoes, what it's like to try to educate you, our audience, uh, about all these things and the ins and outs of establishing trust and doing the homework and getting jaded sometimes and getting frustrated along the way and how we cope with that. So anyway, hopefully it's not too meta for you, but I think you'll still come away with a lot of great information from today's show. Now, I want to define a couple terms real quick that we throw out while we're talking. Uh, we talk about geofence warrants. This is something I've definitely talked about before. This is the thing where the, the police or law enforcement goes to, let's say, Google and says, hey, there was a crime in this area. I want you to Tell me all the phones you know about that were in this two block radius or five block radius at this time on this day. And the super creepy eye opening thing is Google can do that. And it's not just the Android phones. It's with iPhones that have that are running Google apps as well. Google knows a lot about you, which is why I'm trying to de Google my life. And I'm trying to help you do that as well. Uh, he throws out the term pseudonymous. It's not quite the same as anonymous. If something is truly anonymous, then there's no way to know who this data is associated with. Pseudonymous means that it's associated with some identifier. So the identifier should be something that doesn't give away who it is. But if you sometimes correlate that data with other sets of data that you do know who that data belongs to, oftentimes it's easy to take pseudonymous data and make it and figure out exactly who they're talking about. But that's what the term pseudonymous means as opposed to anonymous. He also talks about a honeypot and honeypot in the security realm is setting up some really juicy target to try to get the bad guys to attack it so that you can either catch the bad guys trying to attack it or sometimes it's just you want to learn how they will try to attack something. Sometimes it's actually to distract them from the real the real prize, uh, you know, Hey, look at this thing over here, shiny object, a uh, lot of great stuff over here, attack this over here and, you know, try to get them to not attack the real thing. So anyway, that's, that's what the notion of a honeypot is in the security realm. Now, real quick, I will say trigger warning for those of you who don't like swearing. There is a couple mild instances of swearing in this. I don't think it'll bug you, but you know, just in case I'm putting it out there, but anyway, let's not wait any longer. This is a great interview. Let's talk to Henry from TechLore. All right, so today I'm talking with Henry, who's the CEO of TechLore. He's a privacy enthusiast, a runner, a coach, an artist, a musician, a book nerd, and a privacy advocate. How's it going? Welcome to the show. I am great. Um, thanks for having me. Well, I've been, you know, looking at yourself for a while. You guys do have some amazing content, and so why don't you start us off? I gave us a maybe a little quick history of TechLore, and you know, what what drew you to privacy? 
Yeah, so um, my whole journey started, and I, I wrote this out to try to be funny. So <laughs> just you're, you're gonna like this. So I know you, you, your whole thing is called firewalls don't stop dragons, <laughs> right? But they also didn't stop me in middle school from trying to access blocked websites. So that's where this all kind of started. I think in middle school, I was trying to um, access websites that were blocked. Um, even some Wikipedia sites were blocked by our school. Oh, wow. And so I started researching ways to bypass things, and I came across VPNs. And then that's kind of something I was very looking into for a while. And then um, over time, it kind of naturally transitioned into the privacy world. I think a lot of VPNs are, you know, advertised as privacy and security tools, which they can be. But that, that naturally just led upon that discovery. And then I picked up The Art of Invisibility by Kevin Mitnick. Uh-huh, yeah. And then I think from there is when I really started falling in love. And the whole Techler journey kind of follows that pretty perfectly. If you go back to like our original, I think our first video is like how to get a free VPN <laughs> on iPhone, which is still like a super like hundreds of thousands of views, which is ridiculous. <laughs> um, but then over time, like you start seeing the privacy guides coming out. And then that's pretty much all we do nowadays. Yeah. So you know, getting deep here, what, like, what does privacy mean to you? Like, and, and what do you, and maybe what do you think most people don't get about privacy? I, th- I think a lot of people have an idea in their head. You know, I, when I ask that question to other people, hopefully they're thinking themselves, you know, what they think about privacy, but some people, maybe my audience does, but a lot of people probably don't really sit down and think about it. But when they do, what do you think a lot of people just don't get when they think about privacy? So what does it mean to you? And then what do you think people don't get about it? First, I, I mean, I don't know. So first, I would say that the people who don't get it, I would argue just haven't actually seen it yet. Mm-hmm. I was I was in middle school, early high school when I read The Art of Invisibility. And it wasn't, you know, the technical defenses that were attractive to me. It was like, holy crap. Like someone who cuts me off on the road their license plate can get me direct access to their home address, Mm. depending on like who you are and like the way things are set up and what precautions that person has taken. That's one of the stories that Kevin Mitnick quotes because someone cut him off. And then he talks about the story where, you know, he tried to get the person's information. He was able to do it through a social engineering attack. And so it was all of these things to show how extensive just like in real world Mm. and, and just in your day to day life, that the consequences of not understanding privacy can be. And that doesn't include surveillance capitalism and um, all the companies who are after this data. It doesn't include governments who are also just swiping up any piece of data they can. And especially the lack of any, really any oversight of pretty much in most areas. Like we do have the California Consumer Privacy Act, which is fantastic. There's the GDPR, which is fantastic, but that's really about it. Actually, Brazil, as of like this week, did update their constitution to now include data privacy laws, which is pretty cool. But Mm. the point still stands to me, it's just a basic human right. And it's not really treated like that. You know, if if you look inside the International Declaration of Human Rights, privacy is in there. Hmm. This was written in the early 20th century. And it's still not something that I think is really um, treated seriously nowadays. And I think we're really starting to see the impacts of that. So I think I believe in it on a philosophical level. But it's also just kind of wild to me how little the average person seems to care about it, um, despite the constant red flags. So I really do yeah. think of like that meme <laughs> where, where there's like fire burning down and the person's just inside <laughs> the fire. Th- yeah, this is fine. Right, right. It's really easy to stay in that bubble. But I think the quicker that people just realize how big of a problem it is, the better everyone else is going to be because these problems are only going to get worse, right? Like yeah. identity theft, ransomware, other malware, account breaches. It's only becoming more widespread every single year. And I think those are the more real implications of privacy. I know that myself and yourself and probably a lot of people in the privacy world are more aimed at like perfect privacy and like trying to get people to like tip top shape to deal with any Mm -hmm. concern. But I think just dealing with the basic problems like identity theft and ransomware and account breaches are probably a better starting point. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think there's so much low hanging fruit and that I focus on that a lot in the book and other things to talk about. There's a lot of simple things that we could all be doing to protect our privacy that would really take us a long way toward better privacy. And and so, I, you know, I, I definitely ask people to focus on those first. The other thing I think that I see personally is that a lot of people are still can't get past the me aspects of privacy to the we aspects of privacy. I think there's a lot of, yes. you know, privacy that your privacy and my privacy overlap and you know that and so i think getting people to the realize that will have an impact and i think maybe that's coming on what do you what do you think about that aspect of that yeah that's actually something that um i'm really glad you touched on because I, I read your book and that's something that was like your book does go into a ton of the like your book really is for non-techies right mm. 
And so a lot of the book is low-hanging fruit. Some of it does get more advanced, but a lot of it is low-hanging fruit. Here's a browser to install. Mm -hmm. Here's messengers to use. Here's better mm -hmm. email providers to use. It's things that, yes, they're, they are simple on paper and might take a while to switch over, but there's nothing inherently difficult about doing those things. And those things alone, and I, I'm sure we'll talk about this later in the interview too, like there's very basic things that you can do that'll take you a very long ways. Yeah, so I... I, I Pretty much overwhelmingly agree. And I also did like, um, you actually did change my perspective on that because you did throw in some good arguments for why the privacy battle isn't just about individuals. Um, and it's not something I quite considered before either. Because like, I mean, it's obvious. Like in, in our course, I, even in my course, in the Techler course, I even brought up like, who can you trust? And the reality is you can't trust many people because you can't trust them to keep your information safe either. So that's just another argument for why people having better practices is just better for everyone. Um, and you had some right. other good arguments in there too. All right. So you already mentioned this, but what I'm curious, what do you worry about more? Like what keeps you up more at night? The, the, uh, the, the more pervasive surveillance capitalism that we kind of see on a daily basis and maybe shrug off or the mass warrantless surveillance stuff, like the stuff that's Snowden revealed. And you know, some of these things we found out about the FBI recently too. And of those things, which of those things were you most? So with this one, okay. So they're both serious problems. I think that most people who probably listen to this podcast think they're serious problems. I think they're both serious problems. But I personally, at least in the U.S. as an American, think that surveillance capitalism is a bigger problem just because it's so unchecked, it's so invasive. And I would argue even the mass surveillance programs have more oversight than some of these companies do, <laughs> which is sad to say. Mm -hmm. It's also... I, the other reason why I really like to highlight surveillance capitalism, it's, in my opinion, a much easier problem to address on mm. an individual level than mass surveillance. Stopping mm. the NSA from trying to collect your data is pretty darn difficult to do. Right. But stopping Facebook from collecting basic information about you, um, you can stop that. Like, there are ways to prevent that. Yes, it's very hard to completely de-Google and de-Facebook 100% of everything, just because there are just some basic requirements. Like, every website has Facebook pixels and Google Analytics set up. Um, yeah. There's still ways to block those, but, like, the point is, like, they really are the the octopus. The, <laughs> they're, the, the, they're the new railroad octopus of the 21st century that's just invading everyone's data. That's the way I, I like to look at it. Yeah. The other thing that I like to point out I usually make when, when I talk about that is that one enables the other, that the, the surveillance capitalism just makes all that data available. You know, there's a, a lot of our agencies do an end run around the fourth amendment here in the United States, uh, against you know, unreasonable search and seizures. They don't have to, it would be illegal for them to get that stuff directly, but it's not illegal for them to buy it from these companies that are already collecting it. Exactly. And it was so refreshing, um, during the antitrust. I don't know if you watch the, the, the antitrust, I don't even know what to call them. It wasn't a, it was like a discussion between the politicians and then the big four CEOs of, uh, it was Tim Cook, um, the Google CEO. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was some time back, but it, it, right the one you're talking about. Yeah. I did yeah, see parts yeah. of that. Yeah, for sure. And, and they directly actually asked the Google CEO about geofence warrants. Mm. And I'm like, I would have never expected a politician to ask about <sighs> geofence warrants because that's such like an unknown mm. thing that people don't know that happens. Like <laughs> the, you have an entity that's part of the U.S. government that is tied to the Constitution who is by no legal means allowed to have direct location data for any citizen they want in the U.S. So instead of getting it themselves, they now tap on Google who has everyone's location data and they have Google give it to them. Right. And this is a pretty common theme. Like you said, like there's things like Prism that allow them to get direct access to individual data. And there's so many other programs out there. But it was so cool to actually see that being brought up. Um, on public television, like we all saw that question come up and the silence that followed. So, <laughs> yeah, yep, yep. One of the things actually made me reach out to you about this, the whole thing was I, I read an article you just wrote and I thought it was really a great article and brought up some issues that I haven't seen brought up, at least in this way before. And so I want to talk to you about a couple things you mentioned there. And one of those was you talk about a lot of the trouble we have and you know, frustrations you have in the privacy movement right now. And you boil it down to two main problems. And one of the first ones you brought up was what you called a lack of empathy. What did you mean by that? Yeah. So first, some context, this article, I, I'm, I am and have been very frustrated with things, just, just being frank. And that mm -hmm. article, the original version of that article was just written as like a diary entry for myself because mm -hmm. I was trying to like unravel, like, why am I so upset with everything right now? Mm -hmm. And then I had to 
take certain things and change them for public because <laughs> you know like there's mm. some things i wrote that probably shouldn't be written for the world <laughs> right um but yes empathy was um one of the things and I'm just going to quote the article here because it's it, 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 this. I'm going to quote this part of the article. So empathy is understanding we once used to have Facebook accounts. Empathy is understanding different people have different threat models. For those who don't know, threat models is just essentially what you're trying to protect yourself against. And it's uh, understanding that different people are protecting against different things. Empathy is experiencing the emotions someone else experiences when they first learn about privacy invasive, the, the privacy invasive world we live in. And empathy is active understanding when someone suffers a data breach, avoiding the temptation to shame the impacted user for not having better opsec beforehand. So um, just to kind of bring that back, it's essentially the further down the privacy rabbit hole that we tend to go, the more difficult it is to be able to empathize with the people who aren't as far down as you are. Mm. So um, the way I normally see this arise is users being shamed for not having tip top practices, even though they're doing their best, right? Yeah. Just recently, we put out a Firefox hardening guide on mm -hmm. our channel, and someone commented that they now have a hardened Firefox on Windows. And I'm like, fantastic. Great. Mm -hmm. you, you now have a more secure and private browser. Within the same hour that they commented, someone responded to them, rhetorically asking, why bother hardening a browser on Windows? Mm. And it's, 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 these, it's things like this that I think are a serious problem. And they're actually like almost looked up to. Um, mm -hmm. These are the comments that tend to get a lot of attention on Reddit, throughout communities where people right. are looking for help. The two main problems with this is, A, it discounts all the legitimate improvements right. that people are making. Right. Like The reality is using a hardened browser has improvements regardless of the OS you're using. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is it also makes someone feel like shit because right. it's a genuine improvement they made. And I know that the last thing I wanted to hear when I was starting to make my privacy journey wasn't outright criticism of how I wasn't good enough. Yeah. So, and I can't yeah. imagine many people who would prefer that. So I right. just think that's a serious problem. I feel like there's so little support for the noobs. Yeah. Um, that's my long-winded answer. Um, it's just that attitude and the privacy world can really go without it. Yeah. I, I Honestly, I think that's a just a systemic issue we have today with social media today. It's just people, some of it's virtue signaling, some of it's just people who want clickbait, some of it's people who, you know, feel that, I don't know. It's that they want to one up somebody just to have people clap and, and and say yes, yes, of course. You know, I don't know. I, it's it, I think it's just the social media world, unfortunately, we live in. That's why I honestly on my blog I had I turned comments off. I just I didn't even want to have to deal with that. I didn't. I just wanted to put myself out there, and while I was, I look forward to people who maybe say something positive about it. I just didn't want to deal with negative trolly kind of comments, and I didn't want to deal with the kind of stuff you're talking about. So kudos to you for even <laughs> attempting. Uh, yeah. you know, for the people that are just purists, that it, they can't accept anything other than what they believe is perfect. It's so funny, too, because if you actually broke down a lot of these purists, if you broke down their OPSEC, they're going to have weaknesses, too. Of course. So they really are picking and choosing what they believe is pure because that person who is giving the other person crap for using a hardened browser on Windows, they're, they're probably using a hardened browser on Linux, but they're commenting on YouTube with a Google account. <laughs> so right. that's okay so like it's funny because like everyone has holes to poke in and that's the whole point of threat modeling like right. if you have to if you have a good threat model together you're aware of where where you fall short where you fall well i don't know if that's a term but like <laughs> right <laughs> so i fully agree there and th what you said too, too is also something that's just very true a lot of these problems that i did talk about in that article are not exclusive to the privacy world and that only makes things more depressing for me because it makes me feel mm -hmm. a lot less optimistic of just the state of the world today, rather than just like the part of the life I'm very passionate about. It's like yeah. everything. Yeah. And also, I wish I could turn off comments, too. Uh, it, honestly, it's like so demoralizing to have to read through comments. And the only reason I do is because like there's such a spam problem on YouTube. And also disabling comments on YouTube, like no one's going to watch your video. You just, you can't, like, it's instant red flag if someone doesn't have comments enabled on a YouTube video, especially now that dislikes are gone, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so you kind of touched on this, but do you think that we too often blame victims for security and privacy failures? It seems like we do that a lot. Yeah, so I, absolutely. I ultimately don't think it should be the user's responsibility to have to understand privacy and security. Like in a perfect world. Mm -hmm. So in my perfect world, I'm out of a job and you're out of a book because <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> privacy should just be a guaranteed by default. Mm -hmm. But that's just not the world we live in today. 
The best example I can give to this that probably makes this very easy for people to understand is Bitcoin versus Monero. So mm. with Bitcoin, you have little to no privacy by default. Everything is public and it's pseudonymous, but it's not right. terribly difficult to de-anonymize users. The user has to spend extensive time educating themselves on how to use Bitcoin properly, privately, and actually executing it safely without making any mistakes. And then you just have to kind of cross your fingers that whatever technique you used mm. to uh, mix your Bitcoin or make it anonymized, I mm-hmm. put this in air quotes, anonymized, <laughs> right. isn't de-anonymized going forward. And uh, this this question ages well, because I don't know if people caught uh, the recent Wasabi news. Wasabi was like, a de- like an anonymizing service for Bitcoin that was recently de-anonymized. Mm. So that's option one. <laughs> so you can kind of just like bet on Bitcoin and like hope that users educate themselves and be able to do it well, and maybe some of them will make it out alive. And then there's Monero. It has privacy by default. If you just use Monero, it guarantees better privacy than Bitcoin without the challenging requirements. Um, And I tweeted something summarizing this recently, and someone responded to the tweet. And they said something along the lines of, it's not Bitcoin that isn't private. It's you who isn't private. So it's literally victim blaming, right? Mm -hmm. Like, So I do think it's a serious problem because you can't blame users for having to deal with a crappy situation And now you're asking someone to take time out of their day, energy out of their life to now have to educate themselves on how to be private and secure. So that's why I like like to give massive props to people. Sometimes we get comments on our videos that's like, oh, I just moved to Brave. And no one celebrates that. Mm. They get some likes, but it's like, oh, okay, they went on Brave. Well, I'm on (laughs) tour. And it's like, okay, like, that's fantastic. Like, so happy for all of you. But like, come on, like this person, like for them, this is like a big step and like this should be encouraged. Um, So I think there needs to be more of that. And also, like, victim blaming literally accomplishes nothing. That's the other part of this, too. Like, the damage is already done. Their their Bitcoin was already de-anonymized. Their email was already exposed. Their password is already breached. You shaming them for something they did before that accomplishes nothing outside boosting your own ego. Exactly, yeah. So, yeah, it's a a problem. Sorry if this is a little ranty. No. (laughs) It's something I deal with literally every day. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Dude, I totally feel you. The other thing is, and you kind of touched on this a little bit too, is that I think that we, you know, a lot of the in surveillance capitalism, a lot of the companies like to say, well, you've had the power all along. We give you all the switches and knobs you need to enhance your privacy. It's really on you. It's not on us. We've given you all the tools you need. It's like, Dorothy, you just, you've had the power all along. You just could have clicked your heels and gone home, <laughs> right? Except that you've got, you know, in practicality, you've got an Imelda Marcos size warehouse of shoes you've got to find and click. Because there's there's way too many. It's logistically impossible for for everybody to find and change all these knobs, even if they did understand it, because they're using uh, dark patterns to euphemize all these things about making it a personalized experience. Like, who doesn't want that? Well, it means they're gonna track you, right? So yeah, I, yeah. And we then we blame people because they don't have privacy and they let all their information loose. Yeah, it's it's really wild. Like it's it's just not okay. And right. Like yeah. Well, and what you said is right. Like the the companies do this. The governments do it to some extent. Mm. Individuals inside the privacy community do it, which is like the most baffling. That's why it's like so disheartening to me because the privacy world should be the best about this. And that's just not what I see, right? Like they should be the ones who should be the most encouraging and should be the most open arms about people wanting to be more private. And that's just not what I see. And I feel like it would only benefit people to be more nice about it, I guess. The other major issue you raised in the article was what you said called lack of evidence-based personal recommendations. You and I are in the same boat. We we purport to know this stuff and try to help other people and make recommendations. When you're doing that, how do you account for all the individual nuances and varied threat models, you know, when you're dishing out advice, you know, how do you keep it simple and yet somehow keep it real? Yeah. So that's the hard thing. And it's something you did well in your book. I think like putting disclaimers when necessary, adding just... Being new, like simply being nuanced is already a great step, right? Like you, you really like dive into things and you explain when this is good, when this is bad, how there's better options out there. But this is like reaffirming like why you believe something and you at least base it on evidence to avoid any, any drama or beef. Like the main problem right now that I see on YouTube is something happens to an encrypted messenger Mm -hmm. that doesn't actually jeopardize many people's threat models. And now it's like a big delete the messenger video. Mm-hmm. We've seen this with Proton Mail. We've seen it yep. with Signal. We've seen it with Brave. We've seen it with a lot of browsers. And like honestly, it's kind of the sad reality of I guess 
this is a little off topic to the question, but it's kind of the sad reality of like how much the current digital landscape rewards sensational takes too. Mm, yeah. And that's kind of a different problem. And like we've done this too in the past. I think everyone's guilty of it at some point. Um, it's just a matter of being aware of it. It's just hard to get it right. Like finding that balance between like bringing awareness to a topic without doing it in a way that's going to make people think something that's not like true about it. It's just hard. But the varied threat models is something that I've always been trying to explore and I don't think I've got it perfectly. So like my first attempt at dealing with this was um, in our course Go Incognito. Um, during the course, there's a green screen the whole time and I'm speaking in front of the camera. And in the first three uh, sections of the course, um, I, I clearly laid out, hey, the colors of the background behind me are going to be changing depending on like varying degrees of the threat model. So when mm. I'm covering something basic, it's green in the background. As things hmm. get more advanced, it turns yellow. And once things get very advanced, it's red. And then there's like a very rarely used black background for like the very, very tippity toppity mm mitigations that people can take mm -hmm. um, so that was one attempt um, another attempt was uh, our become anonymous guide which we broke up into three different zones zone one is like easy zone two is moderate zone three is advanced and um, that's the same thing that we employed for our device specific guides so like if you're interested on how to make windows as private as you can we have steps that are easy moderate hard uh, mac os linux all of the above as well as mobile devices same thing with our firefox hardening guide we recently did it's like easy, moderate, hard. So that's like, I found that to be a very simple and approachable way for people because yeah. the hard thing about, and like we have a threat modeling guide too. So that's like another way that we've tried to at least directly address that. If someone has never been exposed to privacy before and they're just curious, oh, how do I make my MacBook more private? And they go on YouTube and search that up. You can tell them make a threat model, but they don't know what that means. They, know, they never heard it before. So it's very easy to just be like, here's easy stuff. Mm. And they can very easily see that. And then you get into the moderate section. And the really important thing here isn't that you're necessarily warning them. It's that you're actually addressing this is moderate, right? It gives the user confidence knowing that, hey, this is actually a moderate step. And so if I do decide to do the steps and it feels overwhelming, that's because it's the moderate section. Right. Um, I think something that really sucks is like, I think Tor is fantastic. I think it's very accessible and it is easy to use. But when people go just use Tor without talking about how slow it is to use, how your yeah. bank probably won't work on tour, how right. you get captured on every website. When you don't bring out the negatives, it sets this expectation that it's just an easy tool to use day to day for everything. Right. And yeah. when people actually use the tool, they have that like massive realization of, wow, this sucks. Why are people not talking <laughs> about how much this sucks? Um, so right. I think that's kind of another point here is like, we need to keep it real. Like we yeah. need to just come forward and be like, hey, this tool, it's going to protect you in these ways, but we should be the people that control the narrative because we're mm. giving them, like we're telling them to recommend this right. tool. We should be telling them right off the bat, this tool sucks in this space, but that's okay. Like right. still try it out. That way we control the narrative and we can also make the expectations lower so we're under promise and they can overachieve rather than us over promising and them underachieving. Right. I don't know if that helped, but yeah, the, long story short, we spend like two weeks on each video for our main videos and mm. a big chunk of that, I'd say like half the time is spent just scripting and figuring out how to present the information in a nuanced way without being too nuanced so that people just get bored out of their mind because that's what I would be doing if it was like strictly for myself because I can just like, oh, signal is great for this, but there's a phone number requirement, which means for people with this threat model, you have to keep this in mind. But also it probably doesn't impact 90% of these threat models. And so you got, like, I can just keep going, but like people don't right. care about that. People just want to know what messenger to use. So I don't know, it's hard. <laughs> right. I really liked the way that you approached it in your book. Like I, I really did. And the way that you just generally talk about it is really solid. It's very like, it's fact-based and it's very personalized and it's very just to the point. So I really like the way you do that. Well, I appreciate that. And it, so one, so one of the things I kind of decided early on was, and I, and I, I've learned this over the years that it, and another approach that some people call this good, better, best, you know, or where they break things down by, you know, here's, this is good. If you just want a no brainer, like this is easy to do. It's easy for most people. It works for 90% of the population. This is your, this, this is your go-to, this is your low, low hanging fruit, or this is the good model. And then if you want to kick it up a notch, here's better. And then if you really want to get kind of off the walls, then there's this best, you know, this nebulous best. Luckily for me, like my goal all along was I'm, I'm focused on good. 
Like, you know, I'm trying to get people like, you know, here are the no brainer things that you should all be doing. And then, and then, you know, I kind of add some flavor with some, and if you want to kick it up a notch, if you want to take it that one step further, or if you do have a kind of a, an, an, an odd, maybe more, a little more of a niche threat model, you can, you could try this or I recommend this. And then, you know, I'd say, well, but if that doesn't quite work for you, then definitely check this and this, but you guys do a lot of that stuff too. Um, so you guys do videos, which are fantastic. I wish I had the time and, and the resources you guys to do those because you guys have some great videos. So obviously you think that video tutorials is a great way to reach people. How have you found it most effective to get your points across to the average Joe who is not a technical person, who's not a computer person, quote unquote? Um, what do you find is the most effective way to to reach people? That's a good question. I, I don't know. It's just there's a lot of little things we do that people don't care about because they don't notice it. <laughs> which is like total it and that's that's videos like people just see the video they don't see the work that goes behind it but like mm -hmm. a lot of our videos like we share with the whole team and our whole team has different technological backgrounds like i think our community manager is probably the most technical of us three and he probably is the most knowledgeable overall so i'm not the most knowledgeable on my team i don't think and then our editor i i don't think that she's insulted if i say she's probably like privacy <laughs> and security wise the least technical of, of us three and so like all of our scripts are normally looked over by S3. And we all have different perspectives on the script. Mm -hmm. And so we're all able to like chime in and be like, hey, this doesn't make sense to me. Or hey, yeah. this this is like too, too, this is too flushed out. Like you gotta just condense this a little bit more. People are gonna lose interest. On videos that we really, like our Become Anonymous guide was like a four or five week production cycle. Most of our videos aren't that extensive. But for that one, we literally had like, I think eight different people that we got on board to like watch a test version of the video. Um, to give their feedback on the video and like they were all like we purposely chose people from different mm. like people who are like just fresh into the privacy world we also picked people who are like very far into the privacy world so that's like the little things that like people just don't know we do yeah we don't talk to people about it we don't <laughs> tell people like we don't need to tell people about it they just need to watch the content and hopefully enjoy it the other thing is we just spend a lot of time on scripting and this is like not to bash on other channels but a lot of channels just set up and this is kind of to my third point, but we spend a lot of time on scripting and planning. And the third point is we do produce our content. I'm a big fan of how the hated one, for example, actually produces content. Like he edits, he has B-roll, he has things to make it engaging. Mm -hmm. And this isn't too bash. There's different forms of content. Nothing's perfect. Like right. there's audio formats, which, ha which have no video. We have our surveillance support, which doesn't have much video. It's just lots of talking. However, I don't find like the two hour live stream approach mm. to be approachable for people personally yeah, right. like if i'm someone who like wants to pick a pick a good browser i don't i shouldn't have to sit through a two-hour video <laughs> from someone who just turned on their webcam and just started talking and right. again no like it's just a different type of like video yeah. format it's like there's nothing wrong with it yeah i just don't find it as approachable so it's things like that we spend a lot of time on production we spend a lot of time on like making sure it's quality content like we're on youtube and we want to compete with other channels, even the mm -hmm. ones that aren't privacy wise, like we want our content to be good enough. And um, we're not developers, but we want because like we ask developers and privacy developers to build tools that are just as good as the mainstream tools, right? Mm. So I think it's only fair for us to prioritize that equally for content, right? Like, yeah, you have people like Linus Tech Tips producing this amazing content, and we're nowhere near their level. But like, I want to get there someday. And just like I hope how Signal can match the feature set of facebook messenger and like right yeah i don't know that it's not a great answer but at least i hope that adds some context behind i guess some of the things that we do behind the scenes that people don't really know about well and and it, you're right there's so much that goes i've tried to produce a couple of videos and it, it does take time and it's there's a lot of things i can't you're so much better at it than i am as far as <laughs> you're much more of a natural what i see you know maybe it's good editing but i mean when i do these things i have to do them so many different times and i have a hard time look not reading my my bullet points and and uh, you guys do such a good job of making it engaging and uh, you guys have great content. And I totally agree, by the way, that, you know, keeping it in like bite sized chunks, like very focused, you know, this is about this. You can tune in for, you know, five to 10 minutes and, and learn everything you need to know in a very short. I mean, they're, I think that you really nailed it with that format. Thank you. So, okay. No company's perfect, you know, and bug-free software just, it just doesn't exist. So in our clickbait world, you know, mistakes, mistakes happen and they're blown out of proportion. You, you kind of alluded to this earlier. So as consumers, how do we separate the hyperbole? You know, these really 
blown out of proportion headlines. Like I can't tell you how many times I've seen articles like, uh, you know, stop what you're doing and do this right now. Or you absolutely know these are the three things on Facebook you must change right now. Or, you know, this is why you must absolutely delete this app from your phone. You know, it drives me crazy, right? Things happen. But as consumers, how do we know what's hyperbole and what's truly consequential? How do we know who to trust in this world with clickbait? You know, particularly when some truly negative incident occurs, like that you mentioned Proton Mail. Maybe you can use that as an example. But how do we know that 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 we can't just write it off? Because there are people, like you said, there are people out there will say, you know, this happened. You absolutely can't use these guys anymore. Yeah. So that's this is a tough one. Um, first off, this issue isn't exclusive to the privacy world. That's mm-hmm. how I'd like to start that. So I think a lot of the advice I'm going to share actually applies to really anything. Mm. I would say the first thing is understand motives behind like Mm -hmm. where something's coming from yeah if someone is constantly attacking a project and they have their own alternative to the project that's a motive um it doesn't mean that they're not being honest it doesn't mean they're not being truthful it's just a data point they have a motive that might work against their that's all you need to know it's just data points it doesn't mean the person's not trusted but it's a data point another thing is how they present information i think is a big one like we constantly say all the time, we should not be your only source of information. Mm. I do not think we should be your source of information. I think we should just be one of many people you, you get information from online because I don't think we're perfect. I don't think anyone's perfect. Right. So anyone who claims that they are the person with the best information. <laughs> red flag. Yep. Yeah, massive red flag. And this applies to anything. This applies to supplements who claim that like you're only going to get strong if you get this supplement. This applies to um, you're only going to get rich if you trust me. You're only going to get private if you trust me. Like you just can't trust people. Um, there's a great podcast called The Growth Equation that I'm a big fan of, and they call it Guru Syndrome. Mm. So really trying to avoid gurus on the internet. And actually, I'm trying to find the link to that podcast because it just applies to the privacy world so well. And also really diving into how information's presented i guess and no one's perfect with this like we've definitely we've definitely like when i go back and watch some of the content like sometimes the person who makes it doesn't even have the worst intentions right like when brave dealt with their affiliate scandal i was pretty pissed and we made a video about it and when i look back on it i think the video was pretty accurate you know but it definitely had the slant of I'm pissed. Mm. And so I think it is natural when an incident occurs like ProtonMail for people to be pissed about it and be like, I'm never going to use ProtonMail again. But that's more of a reaction than an actual assessment. So I think that's another thing, too, is just like understanding, like, where is this individual coming from? Are they personally impacted by it? Is this breaking their trust in the company? Is this something that if they weren't involved with the team, they would be like... If someone didn't have a ProtonMail account, would they be assessing the situation the same way, I guess? Mm. For those who don't know, I don't know if you've talked about it on your podcast, but ProtonMail pretty much hand... By the way, they do this all the time. This isn't like... For some reason, this this headline specifically right. got a lot of traction, but a French activist who was using ProtonMail was part of an international investigation and their IP address was handed over by ProtonMail, which by the way, ProtonMail is a threat model blog post from 2014. 2014, this happened in 2021, this whole incident. Mm. In 2014, which was seven years before this incident, ProtonMail put out a blog post saying that ProtonMail, during national investigations, may be obligated to comply with IP address um, handovers. And their privacy policy states this. It stated it before the event. What they did do is they updated the privacy policy to make it even clearer for people, because I think it's good that they made it clearer, because it was still a little bit kind of like... I don't know, this can be interpreted different ways. Um, mm. But this was blown completely out of proportion. People are saying ProtonMail is a honeypot because of this. People are saying that um, they totally de-anonymized a user's emails, which didn't happen. The email mm. content is totally safe. All they handed over is an IP address. And ultimately, th- this just highlights, like this is what we say, this is what a lot of like people say, you can't trust a single tool. Right. And like this company that you're paying five bucks a month for, or maybe even zero with ProtonMail, isn't going to save your behind in an international investigation. So this person should have been using Tor, which is even what the Proton people said. In fact, they even said, I don't know how true this is. I actually am kind of mad they even made this claim. But uh, Andy, which is the CEO of ProtonMail, said if they were using ProtonVPN, they would have been safe. (laughs) So I don't know how true that is, but that was a claim he made. But yeah, I guess that also just side note, but layer up because not a single tool will ever protect you. So I don't know. I, I think there was a lot of good things to take away from that, but it's a problem that we're constantly dealing with and we don't know how to deal with it either. 
because um, I don't think we're perfect, but I like to think that like we do take an evidence-based approach and we try to avoid this problem as much as possible. And I feel like it's hard to compete against people who aren't doing that and people who are just writing these, this is compromise, that's compromise, this is compromise. Yeah, I just don't know what to do about it. So it's something I'm still figuring out. Yeah, <laughs> right. Again, we're back to the nuance, right? Nothing's black and white. There's yeah, there's going to be nuances to these things. And so I, I, I think it's great that you call that out and you make a point of saying that there are nuances and you shouldn't just trust us. You should get your information from multiple places. I, I try to make those same kind of points too, but I completely agree with you. And I think it's also a great point that a big red flag is when anybody tells you don't listen to anybody else, only listen to me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that should be your first, Inst- <laughs> first clue. Instant red flag. Like yep. if anyone says that, that is, that is like run home right now like that is a big red flag that is that is when you're a kid and someone's offering you candy moment like it's it's that bad in my eyes like no one should ever be in a position where they're actually having to tell you they're the only trusted source in the world on a topic right that was actually you know what this brings me up something i used to tell my kids and that was something i grew up not understanding when i was a kid and, and some of the most confident people i ever met you know, the ones were almost bullyingly confident turned out to be the ones that had the most highest inferiority complexes because they were that's how they coped. Right. I mean, but they could pull it off for anybody who didn't understand when they come in, they just exude this confidence and absolutely sure of everything they say. A lot of people just soak that in. It's like, oh, these guys must know what they're talking about. But in a lot of cases I've over the years in my many years of of life now, I've realized that a lot of those people are the one you can't trust because they're the ones that are overcompensating for something somewhere. Yeah. And on top of that, if you're so confident in yourself, are you actually going to be self-analyzing the weaknesses? Right. Yeah. That, that's the other that's the other drawback, because like even if they do know what the hell they're talking about, if they refuse to actually acknowledge that they can make a mistake, they will make a mistake at some point and they're not going to acknowledge it. So that's right. kind of the other layer, even if they are somehow the smartest person in the world and whatever they claim themselves to be in, like that's only going to last so long because at the end of the day, like they have to be able to self-criticize to get to the next point. So yep. totally agreed. And that doesn't apply just to the privacy world. Like, right, like you said, exactly. it's, yep. it's a very common thing. All right. So over the past few years, things have changed pretty rapidly, I would say, in the privacy space, certainly in the privacy space, somewhat in the security space as well. And a lot of them have you know, been positive changes. There's been a lot of new options for protecting ourselves that weren't available before, which is great. But, you know, the threats have evolved too, you know, partially in response to those countermeasures. So you know, another deep question, is this a winnable war uh, or is this just going to be a perpetual cat and mouse game? Is it always going to be finding the next thing and blocking the next thing because they come up with something new? Yeah, I don't know. So this this is a question that like, I just don't know. I think I'm so far into the privacy world because it's, it's so, I'm so immersed in it that it's just hard for me to even like step back and try to reflect on it, like what the last three years even look like. <laughs> I know it's it's a weird thing to, to say. I just it's just really hard for me because mm. I, I see both sides of it, too. You know, like Google's trying to push flock. And now um, you have Mozilla trying to work with with Facebook and Meta on trying to develop something that's similar to flock, yeah. um, which which is funky. And that is weird. But at the same time, you have Mozilla pushing out better defaults in Firefox and like Firefox hardening has never been easier. And now email aliasing is just a mm. common thing, you know, yeah. like simple login, Anon Addy, private relay from Apple. Like these are all things that didn't exist two years ago. Right. And now you have like complete email privacy on the Internet for the most part, for most threat models, at least. Like you can hide your email from literally anyone you want to. It's it's great. Mm-hmm. Um, you have things like we are seeing new tools that make privacy easier. So while I think that the invasive technologies are also at least attempting to come forward, I, I'm, I'm also seeing tools that are making good progress as well. I don't think the browser space has ever been quite as good before. I, don't know, I, I, I struggle to say that because the browser space is always a little bit depressing, but um, <laughs> it is still like better than it was in my opinion. You're right. Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Right. And yeah, I don't know. I guess I just I, I don't really know if it what direction it's going, but I see wins and losses on, on both ends. I don't know. I, I'd actually appreciate your thoughts on this one because I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, the way the way I phrase this is uh, I teach a class on security and privacy for seniors. And there's a bullet on, on the last in the last set of slides in the last lecture where I 
you know, kind of prognosticate. I've got a bullet that says it's going to get worse before it gets better. And I have yet to remove that bullet. I agree <laughs> with that. A hundred percent. Like in, in regards to people being aware of privacy and like the whole movement altogether, you're totally right because people aren't going to care about privacy when it impacts them. So if there ever is a way out of this, it is only going to get worse. Um, <laughs> Yeah, well, and, and unfortunately, it takes some uh, nasty incidents, and I think, to bring it home for people to for people to kind of wake up and, and maybe see that where things really could go off the rails, and it's not you know, it's not hypothetical anymore; it's real. Yeah, I think we need to hit people where it hurts for them to know. Yeah. Not we, but like well, I think yeah. it's gonna have to, <laughs> right. like like the moment that the average American doesn't get their steak every day mm. because of right. a ransomware attack that impacts the meat industry. Right, yeah. That that's when privacy now is a priority. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. So uh, as we wrap up, and you do a lot of recommendations on the show. Before I kind of get to some specific, maybe again, low hanging fruit, easy recommendations for people. When you're doing recommendations, as you're looking at products and services and trying to evaluate them to determine whether or not you want to recommend them to your audience, what are your general rules of thumb? Like, what are you looking for in a product? And maybe what are some immediate disqualifiers, these red flags? And what are things as soon as you see that, like, I can't recommend this? Yeah, so almost always the first place I start is just seeing what other people's thoughts are on things. Like, that's normally the first place I start. I don't think I'm inherently any more smart or qualified than some of the other people in the space. So if someone is like, check out Fastmail, I'll right away look into like GitHub discussions on privacy guides about Fastmail and why is Fastmail not listed by privacy guides. So that's already like a get starting point. Like I want to see the criticisms and the, the things that people say about services right off the bat. So I at least have something going into it. And then I'll do my, some of my own research. I'll look into the service. I'll read the privacy policy. I'll read, get the other data points. Is this open source? Is this something that has any immediate red flags? And then from there, if it's something that's even worth considering, I almost always like to actually use the things. Like mm. I can't imagine recommending things to people without using them unless it's like overwhelmingly a positive tool. Like I've never used cubes before, but I can recommend cubes to people because it's such an overwhelmingly praised operating system by so yeah. many people. Right. So that's just a general starting approach. As for like actually, so actually this is a good example. So there's a service called silent.link. Hmm. Silent link is an anonymous eSIM service. So you go to their website, you send them Bitcoin, and they give you a real phone number that's an eSIM hmm. that you just load onto your phone. This takes like 10 minutes, and now you have a completely real number that's not a VOIP number. Huh. So it's a real number that's an eSIM that lives on your phone. So many red flags. Like first, like just the idea of what I just told you is like kind of a red flag because like getting phone numbers is quite hard to do. Yeah. Uh, like real phone numbers. And also just the website isn't the most reassuring thing. There's very little information, but I decided to go for it and it's worked incredibly well. I'm still using the service. Huh. And we actually did a review of the service and I did very firmly be like, hey, I do have some issues with this service, mostly regarding trust. So please proceed with caution if you're looking yeah. to test this. So generally, I think your content is nuanced enough, luckily, for us to be able to still cover things, even the things that we don't necessarily like, mm. because we still talk about the things we like and dislike, and we still try to like make people aware of the, the common uh, pitfalls in any particular tool. So that's generally the approach to our video content. As for our website, our website does cover some resources as well. Like we have like recommended browsers, recommended phones, recommended XYZ. And my biggest complaint with that right now, which is something we're working on, is adding more context. Right now, it's literally just that. Hmm. Recommended messengers. List of five messengers, and that's it. Um, ideally, you should be able to like hover over each one, and it tells you, this excels here, this is not great here. So ideally, there's some more context there to at least help people understand some of the pros and cons of each tool, which every tool has. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I would say it's just a lot of research, and also being in the space for a long time has really been a big help in me just instantly being aware of when something is a big red flag and when something is like really cool um yeah. it's something you just get a knack for I, I think you probably know that too like when you get linked some new project you'll click the link and you'll either go Ugh, right away because you already know that this is like probably a scam or right. you're going to be like oh this is so cool like right away without even like starting to scroll <laughs> right right 
Yeah, yeah, you do pick up a little bit of a sense for that after a while because you're, you're right. You look at these things all the time, and I get people recommending things that things I've never heard of. Things uh, I get some of that stuff from you guys, to be honest. Uh, and it's like I'll go check it out, and uh, yeah, we're we're kind of in the space, so I guess that's how we get the uh, get the recommendations, and you do pick up a sense at, for after a while. So hopefully, yeah. we are providing that service for our for our audience. Yeah, that and, and for the. And for the record, we're not just relying on our sixth sense. <laughs> we are like right, diving right. into them. I'm like, it's just a thing. Like the, the minute you access a website, you just know right away normally if it's good or bad. <laughs> yep. All right. So got to ask the question. So what, what are some of your easy no brainer? Like, you know, when your family members or your friends are like, hey, Henry, you know, just give me the just give me the top five. What, what should I be doing? You know, what services and stuff do you wholeheartedly just r- rattle off the off the top of your head? Yeah, so I actually listed these out, so this will be a little bit more listed. Mm. However, the first thing I'll start with is that this question has the assumption for people who are listening that you this is someone who has done nothing for their privacy. They're just the mm-hmm. average user. Right. So these recommendations, again, I'm not recommending people tour Hoonix and right. deleting 90% of their accounts the minute they talk to me about it. So that's right. kind of the context here before someone gets mad that I'm not recommending <laughs> Tor. <laughs> so um, first, I normally start with Signal just because like you need a safe place to talk to people, yep. to call people. And Signal, in my opinion, and by a lot of, and, and a lot of other people's opinions too, not just mine, it balances privacy, security, and usability incredibly well. Yep. Arguably one of the best for any messenger, in my opinion. We're using it right now, yep. Yep, and it fits a majority of threat models just threat models just excellently. It's great. Yep. Aside from that, I think one of the easiest things that people actually enjoy doing, by the way, I've had great luck moving people from Chrome to Brave. Hmm. I know this Firefox, again, I'm trying to make this as easy as possible for people. Right. Brave is much more familiar to people than Firefox because Brave is based on Chromium. It has yeah. a similar UI to Chrome. Mm-hmm. And also, I think Brave is a little bit more usable for people, and it's just more familiar for people out of the box. Brave also has ad blocking out of the box, and it does mm-hmm. all the privacy stuff all by default. The only thing I normally do is I disable people's crypto crap for Brave, because most people aren't interested in the crypto crap in Brave. So I normally just turn that all off for them, because I already memorized where all the freaking buttons are for the crypto <laughs> crap um, on how to disable it. But people love Brave. They love mm-hmm. it. Like. It gives you ad blocking. It lets you play YouTube videos in the background on your devices. It's just genuinely a better Chrome. I can't think of a single thing Chrome does better than Brave. I, I just right. can't. So <laughs> it's one of those things that I think is a great step because you can tell someone you just improved your privacy by a lot. Yeah. Right. And you're getting a better experience out of it. Yeah. From there, I normally try to target the search engine. Norm, mm-hmm. Ideally, one with Bang support. So Bangs are when, um, like DuckDuckGo, I don't, for people who don't know this, if you type in weather, and DuckDuckGo, and you don't like the results, you can add G exclamation mark at the beginning or end of your search query, and it'll automatically direct your search to Google. So it's really cool. There's a start page bang, there's an Amazon bang, there's a YouTube bang. You can essentially do searches directly from DuckDuckGo anywhere. Brave Search recently has been kind of my favorite. I prefer Brave Search over DuckDuckGo myself, Hmm. and the people I talk to tend to prefer Brave Search as well. So I normally have them use Brave Search, which also has bang support. There's also start page. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do not recommend StartPage to people who are using VPNs since StartPage consistently blocks VPN users. That's mm-hmm. a rant hmm. for another time. <laughs> right. um, so just to kind of check in with where we're at right now, normally it's Signal or any encrypt, like end-to-end encrypted messenger, right? If they're in the iPhone ecosystem, iCloud backups are a big concern, but right. iMessage is still better than using SMS. Yep. So normally Signal, Brave, and then... Ideally, a search engine. Those are like the three like get started points that are very easy for people. It's just changing yep. something, and then everything works from there on out. From there, if they're interested in doing more, I don't like to push people. Mm-hmm. Normally, it's a VPN up next, just because like the things we've already done really address. Like Signal now gives you a safe place to communicate, right? Your browser Brave is now blocking trackers on websites you go to, and it's giving you a much safer browsing experience on all the websites you visit. And now you also have the search engine that's not tracking every search you're doing. With a VPN, you're also at least getting to hide your IP address, which makes it a little bit harder for sites to correlate traffic between them. And also, you're now hiding all your web traffic from your ISP. Mm-hmm. So this is a benefit assuming you trust your VPN provider more than your ISP, which I right. personally don't find hard to do. And it's why I'm a little bit weirded out by people who are so anti-VPN, because <laughs> I'm like, 
even if a VPN is logging everything you do, you're still not in a worse position than when you were with your ISP. <laughs> and if you did go with your, like, if you did get trusted a good VPN, which I'd recommend like iVPN and Mulvad to a lot of people, um, mm-hmm. it's very, they're, they're pretty solid experiences. And I'd say the next step, and it's a very important step, but it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of dedication and a lot of energy for the average person. Person, So I don't normally recommend this to people unless they're actually like interested in doing it. I'm not going to force people to do this. Mm-hmm. And it's locking down their accounts. Mm. So this means shutting down accounts they no longer need, enabling 2FA when they can, and moving over yeah. to a password manager. Again, I normally wait to do that just because it's a lot of work. And I find that it normally discourages people if they're doing <laughs> it uh, right off the bat. So yeah, yeah, it does take time and effort. That's for sure. Yeah. So just to summarize that signal end to end encrypted messaging, brave from Chrome, moving to search engine, ideally a VPN if they can, um, though it's not like a super priority in my book. And then also um, locking down accounts if they're able to, if they're not doing the account method, I normally at least get them started on aliasing, which I think is like the new easy thing Mm. for people to do. Getting someone to use simple login, super easy. And people actually enjoy simple login just for spam purposes, because mm-hmm. now they can give a, a, a disposable email address to this website they don't actually want to give their email to. Um, there's also privacy.com, which I think is a great aliasing service. There's also services like MySudo, which offer phone numbers. So I'm really starting to see more of the aliasing solutions as a very useful tool for people getting started with privacy, because it's very easy to understand and it's very useful because it yeah. really breaks up that marketing pattern that um, people get. Because like, if you're using the same email for everything, it's very easy to tie your accounts together. Right. Um, if you use the same phone number for everything, it's very easy to tie your accounts together. But if you have aliasing, it's very hard to tie those things together. That was a long-winded answer for a simple question. So <laughs> no, those are, and those were top-notch. <laughs> Absolutely top-notch. I totally agree. So uh, last question before I let you go. Look ahead to the future a little bit. You know, what, maybe what worries you? What gives you hope? And then where do you see TechLore going in the next few years? What gives me hope is, so it's it's a double-edged sword. What gives me hope is the bad things that will happen in the next several years. I think that there's going to be bad things that happen. And I do think that there will be an influx of people in the privacy community. Mm. It sells itself, really, mm. right? Like, I, I don't think it's even worthwhile, in my opinion, for people like you or I to have to do any marketing because <laughs> people just naturally stumble on our stuff when something happens to them like that is the marketing mm. which is like kind of the inherent like evil side of privacy is like it people only seem to give a crap about it when something actually impacts them negatively so it's kind of unfortunate i don't know i i'm really hoping that we see some more regulation in the next several years um, yeah. i know that there's a huge part of the privacy world that is against control and centralization right. and is right. anti-government but mm-hmm what we're doing isn't working, right? It's just not this whole idea of self-regulation and Facebook. Like people are saying, oh, it's okay. Instagram, WhatsApp, Facebook, they're all going to compete. And whoever's more private, if that's what the market demands, that's what's going to happen. And what ends up happening? Facebook just buys everyone out. So right. like, <laughs> it's, <laughs> I just don't think this is going to happen. Um, we have data and can prove the number of privacy improvements in places that have privacy regulation which is right. California and the EU. Right. And we see better privacy in the entire world because of those places that have that regulation. Absolutely. So I really am I'm hoping that that regulation does kick in because it's clear that what we're doing isn't working and it will guarantee privacy to more people by default without them having to even do anything. Um, and that's kind of the goal of all this. As for TechLore, I, I don't know. We have a lot of things on the back burner. It's hard because... People think we need more ideas for things and we have the opposite problem. We have a list of like hundreds of video ideas and we just don't have enough bandwidth. So, I mean, I can go into like all the ideas we have, but honestly, what I'm really hoping is next for TechLore is more people on our team. But to do that, like we need more funds, we need more money, we need to get our, we need to get more popular. Um, We need more, yeah, we see more funds. So ideally in the next three to five years, we have more funds and we have a larger team so we can actually do more things that we want to do. Because there's a lot of things we want to do from like, developing like actual software to um, putting out more courses for things like small businesses and whatnot. Cause that, that's a big question we get. People want to like start their business and they don't know how to a keep the business private from this, from themselves and also conduct their business in a safe way for their customers. There's no resources yeah. for this. It's right. wild. Right. Like, oh yeah. If, right. if you're starting a business, how are you going to know how to keep your customers safe? You just don't. Yep. <laughs> right. Oh yeah, exactly. Yep. 
So well, that's yeah, where you guys come in. So, yeah, uh, or anyone. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm a supporter. Uh, I support you guys on Patreon. I'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, and folks, I I recommend that people support this stuff in general because, you know, in the marketplace, we we've got to put our money where our mouth is. We've got to make sure that we're supporting people who are doing the right things. Not only to so you know because they're doing the right things, we want to show them uh, our support, but to show the other people who aren't doing the right things that there actually is a market for doing it the right way. So. Uh, thank you so much, Henry, for coming on the show and for doing everything that you guys do. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And just to add on to that, we just put out a video about this, actually. And it's about, like, we started supporting some projects recently. And the crazy thing is, like, we have a following of, like, 175,000 people. And we're not that large in the scheme of things. We're just not. Like, that's a lot of people, but we're not large in, like, the YouTube side of things. And let's just say we had 200,000 just for simplicity's sake. If mm-hmm. one per like, if each person donated a single dollar every month to their favorite project that's two hundred thousand dollars a month right which is like two what 2.4 million a year yeah into the privacy world and that's just a dollar if it was five dollars it's over 10 million a year so like the little things really add up and so donate to your favorite project because like you really do make an impact we're small overall the privacy world is very small so like just like carrie said like donate to things because like they need to see the demand for that and we need companies to be aware that people are like willing to pay for privacy and just make it more attractive. Sorry, sorry to butt in the last word there, but no, I just think it's wonderful. important. Thanks a lot. Thanks again, Henry. I want to thank Henry again for coming on the show. I'm so glad we got a chance to hook up. I hope you guys enjoyed that too. Obviously, I got a lot of respect for Henry and what those guys are doing over there. Uh, be sure, if you haven't already, to go to techlore.tech. Uh, That is their website. It's in the show notes, of course. They've got a lot of great content, really, really good resources on on privacy, including some really good videos like their Go Incognito course that he referenced, which I am working my way through right now. And it's it's a wonderful class. I would recommend it to absolutely anybody. And I'll circle back to that in just a minute when I give a little bit more details on the giveaway, because Henry and his crew were kind enough to give away five licenses to that class to give away. Now, Henry talked. Henry and I talked a little bit about uh, Proton, uh, the company that makes Proton Mail, and Andy Yen, who is the CEO and founder. And I've had him on the show before. Turns out it's been a while. I can't believe how long it's been, but he is going to be back on the show very soon. I'm going to be interviewing him shortly, and we're going to talk about that incident that Henry brought up. And we'll hear straight from the horse's mouth about what happened there, and you know what any company is required to do in, in, in situations like this when they're legally compelled by whatever country they're in. Now, all countries have laws that companies must abide by and how that's all to be honestly expected and something you just need to factor in when you decide what your personal threat model is. I, I, I love ProtonMail. They got great stuff. I have no reservations whatsoever recommending Proton and their products. I use them myself. So, you know, fair warning, I, I'm already on <laughs> I'm already on their side, but I think it'll still be good to talk to him about that and hear it straight from him about, you know, about what happened and, and, and how we need to be thinking about situations like that. So also today, Henry mentioned the concept of aliasing a lot, and I would have defined it ahead of time, but I think it made more sense to talk about after. And that is this notion of we have certain identifiers associated with us that marketers love to know because they can be used to track us. And the the big ones today are usually our email address and our phone number. Very often, those never change. I mean, because we can use them anywhere, we tend to stick with one for life. But it doesn't have to be that way. And we can, in a lot of cases, certainly for email, and, and if we're willing to go a little bit further with phone numbers, we can create other identities and these other aliases for ourselves that make it harder to correlate our data across the internet. So yeah, completely agree with Henry that that is a great technology that we need to use whenever we can. So one more quick thing before we go, and that is again, that the big giveaway for the fifth anniversary of the podcast will end this Friday, April 1st at midnight. Actually, I think technically it's 1159 PM Eastern time. So if you listen to this podcast right away, you've got five days to enter. If you don't listen to it right away, you've probably got a lot less time. So again, like $2,600 worth of stuff is going to be given away to 10 lucky winners. There's going to be one big grand prize that's worth over 600 bucks by itself. And then four tier two prizes uh, worth over 300 bucks a piece. And then five tier three winners uh, with over 100 bucks worth of stuff each. 
The grand prize winner is going to get the, the physical stuff, the, a bunch of books, including my book, a signed copy of my book, a copy of Privacy is Power by Carissa Valise, which I really like, uh, several really nice tech books from my publisher, A-Press, and two, not one, but two YubiKeys. They're, they're really popular uh, version 5 NFC security keys and a t-shirt from StartPage. The grand prize winner will also get one of my highly coveted security-enhancing challenge coins. Now, the top five winners, including the grand prize winner, will get a one-year subscription to the Priv app, a free pass for the Go Incognito course from TechLore, and a one-year subscription for FastMail. And all 10 winners will get a free one-year subscription for Malwarebytes and a free one-year subscription for StartMail and a PDF copy of my book. So lots of great prizes and lots of ways to enter. You can enter multiple times. The more times you enter, the higher your likelihood of winning. And part of that includes referring friends. The more people you refer, the more entries you get. So spread the word, post it all over social media, share it with your friends and family. You've only got five days left. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. That's our show for this week. We got another news show for you next week. For my patrons, they'll get a little bonus content with Henry and I. Lots of great interviews coming down the pipeline. If you haven't subscribed, go ahead and do that so you make sure you don't miss any of them. And if you get the chance, I would love to get some really nice reviews for the podcast. Uh, the best place to do that, honestly, is on iTunes because that's where most people get their podcasts. But anywhere you do it would be much appreciated. I do watch the ones on iTunes, so if I see one there, I will read it on the air as my little way of saying thank you. And if you happen to have a copy of the book, I would love to get a nice review on Amazon as well. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for this week. Take care. Stay safe out there. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.